Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Coming up on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Is the party ready for government, your party? Um, I hope so. I mean, it looks like we're going to be there, doesn't it? It's a long time. It's a long time since we did that, isn't it? Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Not quite for the last time, but soon to be here in the Red Lion Pub. I'm Christopher Hope, Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph. It's been a week when the economic picture has worsened for millions of us and the government has wrestled with what to do about it. To discuss how that's going, I'm joined in a pub by Ranald Jai-Wardener, a former Tory cabinet minister in Liz Truss's administration. And Labour has been surging ahead in the polls. But is the party ready for government? Albert joined by one of the party's MPs, Rosie Duffield. But first, schools have been in the news this week with reports of students identifying as cats and wolves and concerns about the number of pupils missing lessons due to the hangover from the chaos to the curriculum caused by the COVID pandemic. With me now is Nick Gibb, the school's minister. Nick, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you for having me. Your first time? Uh, in the pub or with you? <laughs> uh, not, not, the, not in the pub, in the pub. <laughs> not my first time in the pub. You're the man who saved literacy in schools. I read in the Telegraph. If it's in the Telegraph, it must be it must true. must be true. The, the, your, your, your phonics crusade has done extremely well. Yes, and I mean, in opposition, in those opposition years, we worked very hard in trying to understand, you know, what was wrong with our education system, not just the symptoms of the problems, but going deep to try to find out why we were declining in international league tables. That's in England, of course. In England, yes. And a few things emerged from those years in opposition, that was between 2005 and 2010. One was that the way reading was taught in our schools was not in tune with the best evidence. And there was all this evidence from Clackmanisher study from the United States that phonics was the best approach to teaching children to read, sounding out the sounds of the alphabet, cat, cat, mm. uh, as opposed to the look and say approach, where you just repeat high-frequency words over and over again to children. Look, John, look. Look, mm. Janet, look. For bright children, that's fine. But for children who are less able, it was devastating. And you know, thousands of children were being were still struggling with that basic skill of reading by the time they left primary school. So we know that based on that evidence, when we came into office in 2010, we changed the national curriculum, we brought in a phonics screening check for six-year-olds to make sure they were on track with their phonics, 40 words they read to their teacher, some of which were made up words to ensure that they were actually learning how to decode using phonics. And over the years since 2012, the proportion passing that check went from 58% in 2012 to, to 82% just, be, just before the pandemic. And that's what's led us to, uh, to rise on those international league tables, the Pearls tables that came out a few weeks ago, where England was 
fourth out of 43 countries testing children of the same age. And that's because if you go around to primary schools today, you will see phonics being taught in every single school. And it's working. It is working. And you didn't see that really universally prior to 2010. But it wasn't just reading that we've sought to address since we came into office. We we looked at how maths was taught. And again, it wasn't in tune with the best evidence around the world. We looked at Singapore and Shanghai. And we brought their methods into to England. So we're rising actually also in league tables in maths as well. And we changed the curriculum to make sure that it was knowledge rich. There was too much uh, superficial understanding of history and geography and science. So we, we brought in a very rich, knowledge rich curriculum. And again, actually, knowledge actually helps with reading as well because what we also know is that the better a child's vocabulary, the more they're able to read. And the more they're able to read, of course, then the more they. Are you the most effective minister in government? I mean, looking at your your history here, you've been in schools, schools, the school policy area, but most of your time in as as an MP in uh, the past decade or so, haven't you? I mean, yes, I have been in and out and then and back in again. I mean, I was I was shadow schools minister for five years in those opposition years, and then I was shadow. Then I was schools minister proper from twenty ten. With a couple of outs. Um, Did you ever want a different job? You're often just too good at schools. Well, I do. I mean, I'm passionate about improving okay. children's uh, reading and, and, their, and their educational outcomes. It, it, it and the impact you can have is probably one of the most impactful of any minister in government, if you can do this, which you are doing on phonics. Well, I think the longevity does help because you acquire a kind of knowledge. And, and also, all those years thinking about the subject, talking to... I've visited now about probably over a 1,000 schools and also talking to teachers, challenging teachers... Uh, reading around the subject and so you, you, you know I, I do think that sort of longevity in office it, it can be you know sometimes I think I know more than many of the civil servants are, are which makes you me. dangerous in Whitehall I imagine <laughs> actually knowing something about the subject. <laughs> exactly but I've also thought you know it'd be nice to do uh, other portfolios but I you know but I am actually passionate about improving the outcomes for children there's been lots of talk in the Telegraph last week about children identifying themselves as animals moons planets cats, dogs and the rest. What is, what's underlying that? Do you think it, it's, it's linked to some kind of uh, anxiety issues from the pandemic? Is that hangover of that? Is it confusing themselves with identity because of social media and you can change your face and shape on social media? So is it people confusing? Is I think it more worrying? Or is it a new well, thing? I think there's less to that story than meets the eye. I think it was a debate about gender identity that then you know, got into you know, making the, the absurdum case. And so I don't think there are any children in our schools that are identifying as animals. And if they were, they would be regarded as bad behaviour by but the child. It would be stopped. The, rep- the reports aren't there of a school in, in East Sussex and the rest of it. Should, should the teachers be saying, stop pretending to be a cat and you'll be a person, and let's go back to school? You know? Well, again, I don't think they are. And, okay. uh, we, and we've, okay. we've, we've been investigating the issue, and, okay. I, and I understand that. Uh, that, 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 that there's le- much less to this than meets the eye. What is interesting is that is that the issue of of gender identity is it is quite prevalent in the schools and the schools have asked us for some advice about how to handle these issues and they're very sensitive matters for some children and it's important that schools have the right advice so we'll be bringing out very shortly some transgender guidance for schools yes. that, that so will help schools navigate what it's is very hard i mean will it will it will it mean that parents must be told if a child at school is saying they they want to transition 
No, it won't say that. What, what it will say is that if a child if a child is having a confidential conversation with their teacher, that's confidential. It, well, to the extent that there are no safeguarding issues, that's never confidential. But if a child then wants to take steps to socially transition, then that will be a matter for the parents, and they will have to be involved in any decisions about. Because currently they're, they're not, or there's no policy at all on it at the moment. So there's no guidance at the moment that a child at school could say, "I want to transition," and the parents wouldn't necessarily be told at the moment. No, that's right. That's why that's why guidance is is yes. coming up. It's coming out very soon, and we'll consult widely on it so that people can you know give us their their opinions about the content. I think it's very good, the draft that we've, we've uh, produced, um, but you'll see it very soon, it, Chris. It, it comes from a, a, a kind place. I mean, I'm a, a father of teenagers, and, it, you know, it, it's like mystery to me as my generation about all this, but they say it's about understanding and being kind to someone else. It's, it comes from a position of kindness rather than one of threat. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I think we as adults think it's a threat to what we understand as gender, and, but for, the, for ch- people of my children's age, it's about just being kind. I think that's right. I think it's forgotten I, I, I the debate. Think, you know, I do think, I do think that. I mean, I, you know, I'm gay, as you know, and being brought up in the 60s and 70s, you know, people weren't kind. No. And so I take a very sympathetic view. However, you do need to make sure that children are getting the right advice and that schools are involving their parents in any kind of decision. It shouldn't be a battleground, though, is the point, because it helps nobody. No, the, the, these things shouldn't be battleground. And I say, your, your, your daughter's right. It is about kindness to people. What, what do you make of the kind of work of Catherine Burble Singh and, and him singing in schools and discipline? Are you, where do you sit on this? Um, it, it's seen amongst conservatives I speak to, you think more of that, please. How do you, how do you see that? Well, Catherine's school is called Michaela. It's in Brent. And I mean, it's a superb school. Great, rec- great uh, output on that. Great results for, the, for those children. And, and, this, and they serve a very disadvantaged community, and a very high proportion of children at that school are eligible for free school meals. But their results are absolutely the top in the country. Mm. Uh, which and is that, extraordinary. Which is extraordinary what she's achieved for those children. And I've actually seen a similar school in, in Yorkshire called the Mercia School as well that's doing similar things. And is it discipline? Is it hymns at well, the start of the day? It's di- well, discipline is important, but it's, it's a kind of supportive, kind discipline. They're saying, you know, you must be on time, you, silence in the corridors, you must, have all your, you must do your homework, you must pay attention in class, have all your pencil case with the right pencils and pens in it. And, and they have a very knowledge-rich curriculum. So these children learn a lot. They know a lot. I've had lunch with these children at the school. They have a kind of family lunch. In Michaela School. In the Michaela School. And those children, they, they, can, have, they can have a proper conversation with you. They, they know about Shakespeare. They know the history. They know about science. And it's confidence, isn't it? And there's a confidence that comes with that. And, there's really, and, and the behavior there is exemplary. And the children are therefore happy and content because there isn't really any bullying in that school. So I, I applaud what they do. And they do recite uh, poetry. Uh, at lunchtime, they have a conversation across the table, across the whole lunch room. Yes. So I, I, it's a wonderful school. And, uh, and so why not expand that, well, the, the model more widely, or are you doing so? Well, one of the things that we've done in office, of course, is enable schools like that to be established. This was, this was a free school set up by Catherine and a group of teachers that she found who shared her vision. Uh, that was never possible before we came into office in 2010. There are now 600 free schools. And some of them are doing things I don't necessarily agree with, but some of them are doing, uh, uh, you know. The, and one of the things we have, I'm very, one of the things I'm most proud of in terms of my term in office is that we have liberated the profession to be able to have these debates. And when you 
talked to educationists from around the world, they say that England is unique in the sense that the teachers blog, they attend conferences like Research Ed that was established about five or six years ago by Tom Bennett. They turn up on a Saturday, t- a thousand teachers to debate these issues about evidence. And that never used to happen to the extent it happens now. And it all goes back to James Callaghan's speech, if you remember, where he talked about this in 1976 when he talked about the secret garden of education policy, that the only people allowed in there were the education yes. academics. Now we've opened that yes. garden. Politicians can debate and, issues, teachers can debate issues. Do you think your, your free school reforms has almost killed the kind of grammar school debate, which was so so potent? I know it's there, all the, all the time is there, but it was really kind of a political dividing line in the late noughties, wasn't it? But free schools has kind of killed that debate slightly? Uh, well, More grammar well, schools being the... The debate's still there, and there are, there are 163 grammar schools. They are excellent schools. Yes. But we're also getting those standards that grammar schools can achieve in some comprehensives, in the, you know, the top sets of the comprehensives, and that's really what we want, want to achieve. And if you talk to some of the, of the people that really do support our reforms, the teachers around the country, I set up this uh, group called the Knowledge Network of teachers who, did, who really do believe in you know, high academic standards and knowledge-rich curriculum. But a lot of those teachers are not in favour of grammar schools, even though they, are, mm. they do share our vision. What's your personal view on grammar schools? I think they're great schools. More um, of them then? I was, I was very happy to, ex- to allow more. I stood on a manifesto in uh, 2017 that, 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 that was going yeah, to... Theresa May like them. Yes, we would have actually secured a bigger majority. We would have allowed more grammar schools to be established. But we were going to allow them. So we weren't necessarily going to mandate them. And if, if a group of teachers wanted to set up a, a grammar school under that legislation... It's a Tory position, isn't it? It's, it's, it's organic if you want to have it. It's a freedom exactly, exactly. But my you know, driving force is about making sure that evidence drives education policy. How is maths taught? How is reading taught? What should the curriculum be in history and geography and the sciences? Uh, This is what motivates me now, and that's why we're seeing England's standards in the international league tables rising in science and reading and and so on. And Scotland less so, but that's a different debate. Well, they've gone down a different route. Both Scotland and Wales have have gone down a more progressive route. They have this, in Scotland, they have this curriculum for excellence uh, approach, which, which uh, you know, is not the kind of curriculum that, that we, we have now in England. We did some of that in the, I don't know, in the, the mid-2000s under the last government, and it really didn't work because children weren't learning enough. They weren't learning the complexity of history or the, or the sophistication of science. Uh, they were learning learning how to learn, what uh, Chris Woodhead used to call lunacy, I think he used to call it. Um, but, you know, I, I'm very proud of our re- reforms, to, to our reforms to GCSEs, to the, to the curriculum, uh, and to the, and the free schools and the academies programme, which is essentially getting schools away from uh, local, local authority authorities, control, yeah. Yeah, giving the schools independence, but they're funded, of course, by the Department of Education. And that program is carrying on, isn't it? You are trying to push. There's a big target by 2030, isn't there, for more more academies? Yes, we want to. We want all schools to be academies. We want all schools to be in what's called multi academy trusts. These are groupings right. of academies where they can share best practice uh, and share back office costs and so on. Mm. And they're proving very successful. Do you worry about AI? Not least, that, you know, in many ways, the marking should should be more AI marking, or you know, pupils sharing AI essays, and that could undermine exams. I think there's, there are uh, opportunities with AI, and there are also dangers we have to worry about. So, uh, so things like. Uh, uh, homework or uh, sort of projects that you submit as part of your exams you've got to make sure that that's the ch- the, you know, the student's own work and hasn't been produced by 
chat GTP. Yes. Um, so there's that to worry about, but there are also opportunities in terms of teachers' workload yes. and what, what you know, how can, can we You can run, that? run uh, essays, can't you, through programs that you see whether it's been AI supported. You can, but as these things become more, more sophisticated, yes. no doubt there'll be programs that produce yes. essays that are, it cannot yeah, exactly. be identified through such programs. So you do have to, you do have to be you have to adapt your sort of exam and assessment system to reflect that yes. reflect this but but there are also opportunities as i've said in terms of marking yes. but, but all, all other going back to student welfare do you worry about parents fines fines uh, there was reports i think this week saying fines were increasing that parents were being punished because some people are nervous about school post the pandemic and the rest of it i mean do you worry about the fines or you think you understand that they are necessary stick in the in the system i think i mean as a result of covid uh, absences have risen quite considerably uh, I, I mean, I've, since one of the things we did, one of the many things we achieved in office is, is bringing absences down. So attendance rates were coming, you know, da- absences were falling very significantly over that period since 2010. And then at the end of COVID, it jumped up. And But again, now it's beginning to come down again, but not, in my view, not quickly enough. Mm. But as you say, a lot of that is due to mental health issues. It's to do with children being anxious about going back to school. They may have fallen behind. We're spending five billion pounds on a national tutoring program and other recovery programs to help children catch up from the lost education during COVID. So I'm, you know, very sensitive to the barriers that children face in coming back into school. Having said that, that there may still be some parents who take their children away from school for a term time holiday or something because that is unacceptable because every day extra day lost in a child's education you know is, it will all, affect yeah, their results it's wrong isn't it so that's why you do need fines as a, as a last resort for parents that are doing that but but at the moment our focus in the department is on just helping children back into school and mental health is something i've worried about even before the pandemic and i think the use of of these things you yeah know, you're holding a phone in your hand yeah the smartphones if children are spending too long on those, mm. it means a you don't know what impact. Should that's schools had. ban them? I mean, we had I think so. Yeah, I, th- I do think that from, should, from the from the premises, from the premises, or uh, in Michaela, they put them away in a locker. Mm. Um, Anne Jenkins was on here. She she calls it porn in your pocket. I mean, that's the, the horrible things you can see on these phones, and that's one thing. Yes. There's that side of it. There's also this, this distraction. You lose yourself in that world. There's, there's bullying that happens on social media yeah. and so on. But also, you're not out with your friends. If you're on this for six hours, you should be out with your friends, socialising, talking to your parents, you know, doing <laughs> yes. uh, doing homework. Uh, so, yeah. And so I do. I do. And no, I mean, Ka- banning Ka- from schools is, is probably I quite a popular so. idea. I think it's right. I think. And Catherine talks about Catherine Burble Singh. She yes. talks about these children being up all night or one. AM, you know, tapping away on their mobile phones, and they come into school the next Exhausted. day half asleep, and therefore they're not f- concentrating. So she's very, very determined. And she, she also says, look, if you're worried about the journey from home to school, and that's why they need a phone, give them a brick phone. You know, one yeah. where you, you yeah. dial. Nokia 3210. Exactly. Yeah, we and I remember <laughs> fondly, don't we? <laughs> from 2005. Exactly. Well, Nick Gibb, it's, it's nearly the end of my time doing podcasting. I haven't asked you for what, what is six times seven, because I know how you hate these ridiculous questions on timetables. Yes, yeah, so I'm told not to answer with seven, six is a 42. I'm not going to ask a question. I'm going to say thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. Nick Gibb, thank you. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, Nick Gibb might not be worried about children identifying as cats, but Labour MP Rosie Duffield is... And she joins me next, right after this. In March, the Daily Telegraph broke a story. 
The former health secretary, Matt Hancock, has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On the 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now, those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The Covid inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we're back. Now, last year, I asked Labour MP Rosie Duffield onto this podcast to discuss a whole host of issues from trans rights to anti-Semitism. It was an emotional chat as she felt totally hung out to dry by the leaders of her own party. She joined me in the red line this week to discuss about Labour's resurgence in the polls and whether she thinks Sir Keir Starmer is on the right track and is even speaking to her. Rosie Duffield, welcome to Chopper's Politics Hello. Podcast. Great to have you on. Nearly the end. I'm finishing the I podcast know. next week, so you're one it. of the last guests. End of an era. End of an era, of course, as we say. But thank you for joining us. So, why are children calling themselves cats at school? It's such a great question. And at first glance, it looks like a bit of a satire thing, doesn't it? A yeah. comedy thing. And, and lots of people online have sort of said, what a load of rubbish, you're just trying to sort of you know, sensationalise this. But I didn't take notice of that article online mm. before In the Telegraph heard, last week. Yeah, it was the Telegraph. But I haven't, you know, I've been hearing about this and other MPs have been talking about this for a couple of years. I mean, it's not have a you? new phenomenon. Yeah, Is absolutely. it just cats? Other animals too? Other animals. I've heard wolves, horses. There was one in your, in that... Um, article about a tree, tree. Um, moon wolves, cows moon uh, not cows crows was Crunch. the lo- latest one I heard locally so yeah it is a thing we can make a joke about it mm. but what does it mean we know children have been through a hell of a lot with lockdown mm. and sort of being isolated from their friends but is this I mean I guess it's so many factors isn't it it's cry for help it's confusion about where they are and their role and everything in life I guess and I think it's desperately sad actually and do adults go along with it too much do teachers need to say come on you're a boy or a girl that's a really be a boy or a girl especially you know or if you want to trans you know is it too much almost kowtowing I think to, there's to a degree children. of that because instead of just saying yes we'll call you the moon or a tree or whatever maybe we absolutely need to find out why I mean you don't wake up one day and decide that you're a cat do you I mean what does that mean does it mean that you're not really wanting to communicate with your peers or your teachers you're withdrawn because of things that happened in the lockdown or what does it mean yes you know we absolutely have to get to the heart of this because it means something you know they're not just all taking the pee out of their teachers i don't think yes and is it pretending in the old days we used to pretend 
Yeah, but play not games. in your teens. I mean, we, we used to dress no, up at primary right, school, but is it some kind of regression? You know, are people feeling so much pressure that they are regressing to childhood? I, I don't is know. Social media, not, in social media, yeah, you can, you can be any, that as well. You can almost be anything on social media, yeah, can't you? You can hide behind a picture yeah, of anything. Yeah, you put those filters on, and of course those cat ears have been going around for years, haven't they? Yeah. But I think it's got to be more than that, and we need to ask the questions. I'm not a psychologist, yeah. but there are plenty out there who could and should be asking. The underlying issues, and do you think that teachers should be more interventionist and just call it out yeah they have to notice that something's going on mm. if you're a teacher and three people in your class identify as a cat you're going to see a pattern you're going to know those children really well what have they got in common what yeah. is it about them that wants them to do that mm. you know makes them mm. want to do and that and not so. to accept it as a kind of identity issue possibly. yeah i mean i think the being kind and sort of treating somebody you know who's obviously distressed kindly is absolutely key but Underneath, you've got to be going, what is going on here? It is about kindness, though, isn't it? Yeah. If you talk to anyone in the younger generation, they say that, you know, when they often email signatures, they might write she, her, mm. and I might say, well, why is that? And they say, well, it's being inclusive. So it does yeah. come from a, a kind Yeah, absolutely. I think the majority of young people really want to be kind to each other and their mm. friends that are going through it. Mm. And, you know, that's perfectly all right, isn't it? And it's hard for you. You've been someone who's been challenging this debate for a while now, haven't you, from the mm-hmm. left? And you're quite alone half the time. Yeah, I mean, in my party, I have lots of people who agree with me and who are on board, but they just won't say so. But it's similar to what I went through with anti-Semitism. There were people who presumably agreed with me. Very few of us spoke up because mm. we knew what was at stake if we did. Why do you speak up? Because I didn't come here to bullshit people and to be a sort of career politician and to make life easy for myself I came here to represent people like me ordinary people looking at us already thinking that we're not in touch with real life and reality it just makes it worse if you go along with something because a small group of people in the inner circle of politics want you to and that's the case with the Labour Party there are certain groups in the Labour Party that don't want us to speak about this that pressure us a lot about this being young, what about the, gender issues or yeah, about gender issues and, and all these things we're supposed to also as politicians put a certain spin on everything aren't we it's a bit of a sort of sales job everything's fine nothing to see here yeah. i don't think the public want that anymore when you were last on this podcast in february last year you spoke about the bullies on social media it's quite an emotional interview if you remember it mm-hmm. has that eased up now I think I've toughened up a bit again. You go through waves of mm. having to be tough again. And, yeah. you know, I'm quite raw and open about who I am. I got here in my late 40s and I just think if I pretend to be other than that, it shows, it's fake. I didn't come here to do that. No. And I think it leaves you a bit vulnerable, but that's mm. okay because an awful lot of people have been incredibly lovely. And, and you won in Canterbury, well. which maybe you weren't expecting to win in Canterbury. No, never in a million years. And then my majority went up 10 times in 2019. Only four Labour MPs' yeah. majorities did go up in 2019. You're so quite proud of that. Yeah, you should be very proud of that. <laughs> and it, you are really setting, you know, for the Labour Party, you're pushing out into areas which are Tory heartlands, aren't you? Yeah. So you should rather be celebrated for your achievements. You'd think. Can I, I mean, say you that? Know, I'm still the only Labour MP in Kent, and we're, right. we're assuming we're going to get more, but not necessarily. Kent is a bit of an unknown to the London hub of the Labour Party, I think. Yes. It's new territory. Are you getting more support from the leader's office? Absolutely not, no. You're not? <laughs> no, not at all. Mm. He's a very nice man, but, you know, it's not that long ago that it was exposed that there was sort of briefing against me. I think mm. that happens fairly often. So why isn't Keir Starmer being more supportive? Um, I mean, you're one of his MPs. I say you're, you're a bridgehead into, into Tory territory politically. Mm. You should be cherished. 
I think he's a bit frightened of me. I don't think he knows really what to do with someone like me. He's only been in the job as an MP two years longer than me and suddenly he's thrust into this leadership position. It's, I guess, there's a lot going on in his life. Politics (laughs) is about bringing everyone with you, isn't it? And looking at at a team and the strengths they've got. Yeah, I mean, if you look at their position on the gender issue, it seems to be shifting... To where you are. Sort of to where I've always been. But I think they want to do that without acknowledging that I'm one of the people that got them there. I think I'm too embarrassing. Oh, I'm never going to get an apology. I've never had an apology for the way that people like me were treated over anti-Semitism by Mm. the party as a whole. You spoke out against it. Yeah. With Jeremy Corbyn as leader. It was really hideous. It was a hideous kind of few years and those same trolls those that didn't leave the party when Keir became leader which most did they most left sort of they had a tantrum because Jeremy yes. wasn't around anymore and left the people that are still around have now latched on to the gender issue so I know locally obviously that some of the worst people are the same people that weren't interested in those issues before but that are using them to sort of bash me on social media. Has the left gone away? It, no, no, those are the people that are still there. In, in the um, party too because politically the left has been almost vanquished or imploded yeah. on its own. I mean there are still left voices, obviously we had the sort of socialist campaign group that were elected in 2019 there's 20-30 odd of those so they're still there and it is a broad church it's a huge party, there are lots of ideas from all sides and we don't all you know I don't believe in everything that Blair believed in or hardly anything that Corbyn mm. believed yeah. in you know we've, we're bits of everything aren't yeah. we so. when did you last speak to Keir Starmer? oh I can't remember I mean we exchange emails and whatsapps occasionally but yeah not for a while it's all that He's got lots to do. He's busy. <laughs> You'll fight again in the election next time? Have you yeah. been reselected? Yes, ages ago, yeah. Ages I think ago. I've got 95% backing from my local party. Yeah, yeah. But you're going to be the sort of turbulent MP, aren't you, in Canterbury, like Thomas Abeckett? <laughs> no Hopefully I won't meet the same end. As no, you certainly <laughs> won't meet the same end. No, you, will not, not. you will not meet the same end. But it's important that you, you, you are standing up for what you believe in. I mean, and strangely, you found allies on the, on the Tory benches, Oh, yeah, you? absolutely. I mean, I remember the first week I got here, I sat on the green benches, I think even my first time, and I sidled along to the nearest person. It happened to be Hilary Benn. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm sitting next to Hilary Benn. I literally got an email from someone who's my CRP secretary, my what you call association secretary, mm. the first day saying, I wasn't very pleased to see you sitting next to Hilary Benn. I just thought, of all the things you could yeah. email me about, how absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. It's a Labour person. Is the party ready for government, your party? Um... I hope so. I mean, it looks like we're going to be there, doesn't it? It's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time since we did that, isn't it? And we've got a lot of issues internally that we have to sort out still. Like what are they? Hopefully, well, they're still squabbling over lots of things, isn't it? I mean, I guess all parties have that. I mean, look at the Tories. They're not exactly happy at the moment. I guess as long as we can sort those things out and, and be ready. I think we've got some great... Do you mean gender issues, cultural, um, in quotes, issues? Yeah, that's one of them, I think. And yeah, yeah we need to sort those kinds of things out. But... I think Keir's united people in the way that we weren't before. Yeah. So. Has he earned his lead in the polls? Yeah, I mean, let's face it, a lot of where we are at the moment is that we're not the Tory government. Yeah. We've got to be honest about that and own that, and we have to not, be better not earning that. it, though, is it? It's just been, no, it's we've, got, we've got a long way to go, haven't we? And mm. I guess people are thinking we can't do a worse job, yeah. which is a start. And in a way, if the expectations are quite low, that's good for us, isn't it? Because mm. we can only exceed that. Will you join the Tories? That was an idea last year. <laughs> no. uh, do you remember that? <laughs> no, I mean, how can I? You know, there, there are lots selected. of ideological clashes like Brexit of course, and of immigration and things. So, no, that's not going to happen. 
Rosie Duffield, thank you for joining us this week in the pub for Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Rosie Duffield there. Now, the final MP to wander into the Red Lion pub this week, donned in red trousers and his MCC tie, ahead of what could be a tricky day at Lords for England in the ashes, is Ranil Jaya Wardner, the former Cabinet Minister. As part of the Conservative Growth Group, I wanted to talk to Ranil about whether a certain Liz Truss was maybe right all along. Ranil Jaya Wardner, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. You've diverted you from Lords today. You've come on the way to Lords in your MCC tie to the test match. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me again. And uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm in the office to begin with. Today, yes, of course, but I will slope off. You'll uh, slope off uh, yes, at some, some point. point. Hope it starts raining by then. Ranjai Wardner, you're a key part of Team Liz Trust. Was she right all along? Well, I think the policies, the principles are undoubtedly right. And we have seen now with the yield on gilts that actually this is part of a longer term readjustment. And if you look at things like mortgage rates, which affect people, and I know it's really tough for a lot of people right now, actually, it's going back to the historically normal rates of 2007 and before. Mm. It's the period between then and now that's been the abnormal period Mm. with mortgage rates being so low. So actually, what we've got to do is go for growth. And, uh, you know, fundamentally... Liz's view, my view, the view of so many conservatives across the country is that people should be free to spend their own money. They earned it. And so they deserve to be able to keep it. And, um, you know, in this time where prices are high for so many, actually taking action on tax reform uh, really would make life more affordable for more people. Jeremy Hunt says, I want to do that. And I can't afford to at the moment, doesn't he? Is that right? Or could he push the boundaries of that a bit more? Well, different people have different ways of getting there. I think Jeremy is actually right in what he said in the leadership election when he wanted to cut corporation tax to 15%. I mean, he, <laughs> yes. He's demonstrated that he wants to be a, a tax low, cutter. Low yeah. tax he says he is. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he has made some improvements in certain areas, like scrapping the doctor's tax, the lifetime allowance yeah. on pensions. Bring more, more consultants back into the workforce. Absolutely. And indeed, retain people we've already trained. You know, why? I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Why would you try and push people? out of the labour market when they at their peak expertise in the NHS or in education or in the police. And so to do that... Because of a certain age. Well, certain age and certain amount in a pension pot. Yep. And, you know, I think that shows that he is willing to listen, which is great news. Mm. But of course, there's so much more that we need to do. What would you do if you were in government now? I mean, would you try and push for this movement on the inheritance tax as an idea, Myris mortgage relief, hold fire to next year, which is what the government's doing? What would you be up to now? Well, Fundamentally, we've got to secure a healthy economy for every person in every community across this country. And so that means we've got to have targeted tax reform that really addresses the problems that people face. Now, I don't favour making the tax system more complicated. And that's why I think we've got to go for simple things like scrapping inheritance tax. It raises six to seven billion pounds a year. But actually, examples in Sweden and elsewhere have shown you can grow the economy Mm. by scrapping that tax. So we don't have to rely on our own modelling here, right or wrong. Mm. We can look at examples around the world and show this is how you can grow the economy. But you've got to do more. And you and I have spoken many times previously about families and the fact that families in this country are unfairly 
taxed. You know, they pay 26% more than the OECD average in this country. The single person without dependents pays less than the average, in fairness. And, you know, it's important to be honest. Why is that? Is that through the way that they, they structure child benefit? So it, both child benefit in terms of the taper off for middle earners, but also the fact that there are no transferable allowances of the sort that you get in France, in Germany, in countries around the world. To support married couple. Absolutely. And so, you know, I do think it's right to create family-friendly income tax. And it is possible, I think, to have income splitting or transferable allowances. And the Considered Growth Group, working with the Centre for Policy Studies, our research partner on this, um, we've got a report coming out in July um, to set out both inheritance tax and... So you view a married couple as, as having one income tax rate, or they can move money between the couples... So we're looking at the detail right now. Okay. Uh, certainly what we want to be able to do is, yeah, exactly. You know, imagine if you could live your life as you want to. That's got to be the principle, right? That freedom to live your life as you want to must be preserved. And that's what the Conservative Party should stand for. And so in that regard, if you look at the way families are being pushed to having both parents at work, whether or not they want to go, sometimes people doing jobs that they don't really want to do because it's the only stuff that they can afford to with childcare and so on. That's not right. Has the party lost its way? And what's the single biggest achievement of the Tory government since 2010? You see, funnily enough, I look back to stuff right in the 2010 Parliament and say there are some things that are really good, like free schools, the opportunity to create parental choice. It's getting that freedom argument, the freedom to choose where your children go to school, what they get Was to. Was that a Labour policy, though? Or that the the well, academies, t- anyway? Tony Blair, to be fair to him, kicked off the academies. The, the difference here was that we were absolutely increasing the ch- parental choice element rather than simply saying we want new people to take over failing schools. And start schools in redundant buildings and rest of That's it. right. And, you know, yes, there was then a surplus supply. That's mm. a good thing. Mm. That should be a good thing. We shouldn't be simply counting the pennies on the future of our country, that our children's education. Mm. We should be saying, let's open lots of new schools and let the best succeed and expand. Mm. And yes, if that means that some and mm. um, some failing schools do shut, mm. then that's a good thing and for our you, children too. Your enthusiasm is interesting and, and good because the government does seem, feels tired. I suppose it's what Liz Truss channeled last summer, but she went too fast too quickly is the criticism of her, isn't it? But that is the received wisdom. Uh, well, you do agree with that? Well, I certainly think that the communication of why we were trying to do some things could have been better. Liz has said that herself as well, I think, to your fine paper. But fundamentally, the challenges this country faces are huge. And in that context, you've got to act quickly. The status quo is not enough. You've got to change that? Well, when for the last 30 years, and so this is both Conservative and Labour governments, for the last 30 years, people's living standards in this country haven't materially improved because of the cost of living has gone up and wages haven't uh, exceeded that. And you compare that to the US, where comparable job pays 30% more, you can see that we could be doing a lot better. And that's what we were going after in the final two years of this parliament to say, look, there mm. is a vision, mm. a conservative vision for this country that does mean you're going to be better off, that does mean you're going to have the freedom to live life as you want. And I think that's why it is still the right time for tax reform to you know, reform taxes for people at every stage of it's their life. It's been a retrenchment now, hasn't there, it seems, from the current administration. They, they think they went too far and then Labour call it a Tory mortgage penalty and the rest of it. Well, one observation I would make is that what we were not able to do 
was, and I forgive me for this, I'm going to use an awful term, we were not able to articulate our supply-side reforms. Which means what in English terms? Well, fundamentally, it's changing the way the government works to make sure that the economy can grow better. So things like, can we get government, dead-handed government, out of the planning system Mm. so that people could build the million homes in London that are easily achievable over three to five years? I mean, that's what people want. And I speak to people in my constituency and here in London, they want a million homes built here. We were trying to do that, but we didn't have the time to articulate that. And you know what? If we'd got the chronology different and we'd been able to set out those reforms first, we might have reassured more people that that message of growth was underpinned by substance Mm -hmm. and therefore the tax cuts were, even in Treasury orthodoxy, affordable. Yes. Just briefly on Andrew Bailey and the Bank of England, they are under, under, under fire, aren't they, from the right? Should he be sacked? Look, I'm not, no fan of uh, what, the, what the Bank of England has done. I think the Bank of England should have acted earlier than it did. To uh, control inflation. Uh, exactly. I think you know other banks around the world have acted in a very different way. Uh, the Bank of Japan, you know, bigger economy than ours. So you know, this is a comparable example. You know, they've acted very differently. I think it could have been that interest rates didn't go up to what they've gone up to now because if yep. they'd acted earlier, inflation wouldn't have gone up to what it yeah. has as well. And there's a political penalty to that paid for by the Tory party. For sure. And this is why I, I do think the bank needs to actually own this. And we as politicians need to be clear that since Gordon Brown created independence for the bank, it's the bank's responsibility to manage inflation. But no one carries a can there. I mean, should Andrew Bailey, who's got a contract until 2028, stand down earlier? I think he will look at his own position, but I think what we need to do is be clear that it is the bank's responsibility, not politicians, mm. uh, to do this. And let me perhaps be a little bit The millions, the millions <laughs> of people that listen to your podcast every week. I think the mandate for the Bank of England needs to be looked at again. You know, the world is different to when Gordon Brown created independence for the bank. The world has changed. And so it's not to say we should be removing independence necessarily, but we should look again at the mandate to make sure it's fit for the 21st century. But Rana, when you say you want to look again at the bank's mandate, how would you structure it? What should it say? The 2% target should go on inflation or what should it be? I think fundamentally we've got to look at the fact that they today own all of the levers and have all of the credibility, but we own all of the risk as politicians. And whatever that looks like, I'm not going to necessarily create policy on the hoof, but I do think we've got to be much clearer around who owns what and who does what. Take the uh, quantitative easing, the buying of bonds. The Chancellor has to sign this off, and yet the bank is now selling them all at a huge loss. Why would we do that? So when it goes wrong at the bank, someone carries the can in the bank. I think that's really important. You were, of course, Environment Secretary, weren't you? There's a big issue with Thames Water in the news this week, sewage rates. I mean, could more have been done? Were you doing enough when you were there? Uh, for 49 days, yes. yes. Uh, the, um, it, it was a great pleasure to be at DEFRA. I mean, I think the environment is so important for people uh, across Britain. And when I got in there, I said that one, one of my three big priorities was water. And I've seen that in my own constituency that people feel very strongly about it. I know there's big campaigns around the country. The, the great campaign run by The Telegraph, absolutely yeah, um, it, leading this debate. When I went in, I said, we need to be much tougher on the water companies. And I wanted to put forward a thousandfold increase in the fines that can be levied from 250,000 to 250 million. And that was really important as well, because otherwise it goes through a criminal process. It takes forever. People never see the justice that they want to see. And actually better to have fines levied if the water companies do it 
and behaving properly, and those fines are then reinvested in cleaning up our rivers. So, and what's happened to them? So the great thing is that the Treasury has still committed to allow that reinvestment of fines. I know that DEFRA is consulting on plans to have higher fines. I do believe it's important to set a lower and upper limit because it creates a clear mm. direction of travel that you say for the worst crimes, this is what yeah. should be levied rather than just have it unlimited, which sounds great, but then it leaves it to the Environment Agency and yeah, others yeah. to decide what they think it should be. Yeah. But look, Anything that makes it tougher on the water companies and encourages good behaviour, so much the better. Ralan Jaya Wardner, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Great to see you. Ralan Jaya Wardner, thank you. Well, that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics Podcast listeners. Thank you to all my guests, Rosie Duffield MP, Nick Gibb MP and Ranald Jaya Wardner MP. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells, Giles Gear and Elliot Lampitt, and extra help today from James Ainley. Thank you, James. And most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. For more insights into the wonderful world of Westminster, please do sign up to the Daily Telegraph's Politics Newsletter. It arrives straight into your email inbox every weekday, and the link for that will be in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to look out for my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out every Friday at 7pm online, and in Saturday's copy of the Daily Telegraph and next week will be my last editions of this podcast listeners I do hope you enjoy it do tune in we've got a couple of editions with some very very special guests and as always please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph where you can if you can it's a great read until next time though cheerio 